Well, I got, I got a compact message for you guys, and uh, I hope you guys are going to enjoy this. Uh, it really is interesting how today pretty much everything's been led by women. Uh, at Sunday Swim at Hillside, it was by Anita and Ju, and uh, here it was led by Megan and Lydia, and then Audrey led worship. Brian did lead worship um, at, at Hillside. It was great. He took Judy, our, our young Judy, with him, and she played the drums, and uh, she, she was really good. So hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get her back here and uh, maybe get her on the team. But praise God. Um, so I have a word for you all today, and it's about love. It's not just about love, it's also about identity. And for me, being a, a pastor and being um, someone who leads altar calls or comes up and prays for people, I have the privilege of having a bird's-eye view on the congregation uh, whenever you know, the, the, those altar calls are being led. So I can look out and see just what's going on. And I don't usually, you know, analyze people or, or look that, that much. But now and then it's good to just get a feel of, of the climate, get a feel of, of what God's Spirit is doing. And I can remember at, at the joint prayer meeting in November, I gave a message called God Over the Darkness. And towards the end of it, I'd led a time of inner healing. And I would look out and I would see some people around the room that were just weeping. They were getting touched by God's love. And then other people, though, sitting right next to them, who were just kind of like staring. And it's like, all right, when's this going to be over with? You know, when's this going to end? Oh, it's another altar call. That type of thing. And it's pretty common. Uh, it's really peculiar, though, when you think about it, that you see God just obliterating some people, and then other people are just kind of chilling, you know, like waiting it through. And I think we've probably all been there in some respect on one side or the other. And I've also noticed that for baby Christians and for people who are just new to the church and they're hungry for the Spirit, they love altar calls. And they come up and they just get flattened every time. I mean, they're just, you know, glory of God's all over them. Every time they're crying. I mean, you just like touch them and they're, oh, they'll start crying like crazy and it's great. But then as time passes, for some of them, you know, it, it doesn't happen so much. They'll come up for the altar call and they'll receive, but it's, it's not like it was before. And I know there's different reasons for that, but, you know, it was something that I just kept analyzing and, and thinking about. And I thought about how, you know, there are, there's a process of maturing as a Christian. There's a process of, of growing from a baby Christian to a child, teenager, you know, adult, that type of thing. And, and it kind of mirrors how you grow as a person. And it made me think about how when I was a child, I would receive love very freely. I loved it when my mom would give me a hug, tell her she loves me, and, you know, all that stuff. When I was very little, I had no problem, you know, in front of friends, whatever, you know, just like totally, you know, happy. Receiving that love. But as I started to hit junior high, something weird started happening up here. And I didn't really like receiving love in public from my mom. It was embarrassing. You know, for mom to say she loves me. What? You know, no. Don't, don't, don't confess that in front of my friends. They, they better not know. You know, and, and don't give me a hug. I mean, you're only my mother. Uh, but for whatever reason, that, that's how it was for me. And my mom, she's smart. She knew that that day would come. And so she set up a secret signal to show her love for me. Oh, yeah. You want to know what the signal was? Yeah, it was just a tap on her cheek. Double tap with her index finger. And that was it. That would just, that would be, it was her way of saying, I love you. So when I'm with all the guys, you know, we're hanging out, you know, and she'd walk by in the room, just, doot, doot, you know, like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. But, uh, but it was that, the way, you know, that I could receive the love. And praise God, I grew out of that stage. And, you know, those, those teenage years left. And I came back around to where I wasn't just comfortable receiving love, but giving love as well. And there's no problem 
saying, you know, I love you, mom, you know, in front of everyone, giving her a hug and, and doing all that. And it's just weird how you go through that stage. And I think most teenagers go through that stage where suddenly it gets weird. And it's not like the parents don't love you anymore. It's not like my mom, you know, had never closed her arms to me or anything like that. She always would want to give me a hug, always want to tell her that she loves me anywhere, anytime. But for whatever reason, I, I just, I was rejecting it. And I, I believe a lot of it comes down to when you are a baby Christian and you just meet God, it's like you get a huge present. And you realize, wow, grace has cleansed me. And wow, the Spirit's touching me. And ooh, I feel so loved. And it's great. And you love it. But then as you start to mature, now it's time for identity. Who am I in Christ? What has God made me to be? What has He made me to do? And it gets scary. Because what that means is you got to start to confront yourself of your different issues in the heart. And you also have to confront your future. And be like, all right, can I lay this down? Can I trust God in this? And what I've started to realize is that in order to receive and to give love, you have to know your identity in Christ very clearly, and you have to know God's identity as well very clearly. Because if you don't know God's identity, the truth of God's identity, and if you don't know your true identity, you're going to constantly get bombarded with lies. And it's going to be very hard to open your heart to receive God's love. You know, when, when I ask people who are struggling or just, you know, the Spirit of God's moving on, everybody's getting blessed, and then they're just kind of like, mm, you know, standing there. You know, what, what are you feeling? And some of them, I, I don't, I don't, I'm frustrated. You know, I don't feel anything. You know, I, I don't feel like God's here. Um, I, I've been distant from God, so I feel like God's not going to touch me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner, and I, you know, I've sinned lately, and, and I just I don't feel worthy. You know, everybody else is worthy, you know, and that's great. I, I don't really believe that, that God's chosen me for any of those big things, and that's why they're getting touched, and, and I'm not. You know, and, and all these different things. I, I, I'm kind of scared of God, and so I, I don't want to entrust everything to Him because I'm scared He's going to send me to some island that I don't want to go to and be a missionary. You know, and, and those different things, and those are all lies. So God says, I will forgive your wickedness and will cleanse you from your sin. I'll remember your sin no more. So that means, you know, what, what's done in your past, even if you mess up here, you just repent and God, God sees you as clean. And Scripture says God is Emmanuel. And that means God with you. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So there's never a moment where he's not there, where he's over there touching those people, but he's not touching you. That's a complete lie. And then it's Satan attacking your identity and trying to tell you that, oh, yeah, he's right there, but he's not with you because you're not special. And the truth is, you're made in the image of God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're set apart from Him. And Scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. He has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So why should you be afraid in trusting your life to the one who created you, who knows you better than you know yourself, and He desires the best for you? He's a God of joy. Do you see how powerful identity is? When you start to realize just how pure you are in His sight, just how much He loves you, just how near He is always, that you realize that, wow, he is here and he is ministering to me. And you're able to receive that love and you're able to give that love. Identity. And I believe that uh, as we're going into this year of intimacy, this year is themed, the, the year of intimacy for our church, that God is really wanting us to learn our identity in Christ, learn God's identity, who he is, how good he is, and receive. Just receive and give that love. And I also believe that he wants us to know what the definition of love is, what true love is. And that's what I'm going to speak about today, love's definition, All right. what true love is. And uh, I'm going to give you guys three words for love. If you read the Greek, there are actually a number of words for love in the Greek. 
but there are three that stand out above the rest. And the New Testament, if you did not know, was written in Greek. So these words of love come up. And uh, the three words are eros, philia, and agape. We're going to start with eros. So if you got that slide, did, you didn't get my email? Okay. Oh, well, so much for the slide. All right, the slide was uh, supposed to have something on it. It's okay. Eros. Eros has a lot to do with desire and passion, and it usually has mostly to do with sexual love. The Webster's Dictionary defines eros, it's E-R-O-S, defines this as the sum of life-preserving instincts that are manifested as impulses to gratify basic needs, such as sex. That is Webster's Dictionary. The sum of life-preserving instincts that are manifested as impulses to gratify basic needs such as sex. Does it sound like love? Eros is where you get the word erotic. Okay, and you, can, you know what that's attached to quite a bit. Erotic. Eros is a selfish love. It's a love that is about your basic needs. And that's what the definition says. It's about its impulses to gratify your basic needs. And what that love comes out in is words like this. I love this guy so much because... He makes me happy because he does this for me, because he makes me feel this way. Okay, notice it's a lot about me. That's what Eros is. It's about fulfilling my own desires. And so if that person who, you know, I love this person because of this, because he has this or she has this, if that part of that person is taken away, so is Eros, so is love. It's gone. And so really the the perfect example of Eros love is a man and a prostitute. See, a man has his needs. He wants sex. The woman has her needs. She wants money. So the man gives the woman money. The woman gives the man sex. That's Eros love. They just fulfilled each other's needs. And it's done. And it's gone. Society tends to like this word. They, they call it, oh, we just, you know, they made love last night. Those two strangers came together and made love. But the truth is, is that there was very little love in it. It was really them just trying to gratify their own needs. Eros, E-R-O-S, in Greek mythology is actually the name of a god. And he is the son of Aphrodite. And he is the god of desire and sexual love. In Roman mythology, his name is interpreted as Cupid. You guys know Cupid? He's that little winged angel guy with the arrows, the heart angels. And he shoots them at people. And he makes them fall in love with other people where they get all desperate for the other person. And it's, I must have you. And Korean dramas are really good about this. You watch Korean dramas and the girl is dating the guy and the guy breaks up. And so the girl throws herself in the ocean because she must have him. And if she can't have him, she's going to kill herself. That is Eros love. She's not thinking about him. She's thinking about herself. If she can't have him, well, she's going to do whatever it takes to get him. That's Eros love. So the truth is, Cupid is actually a little demon. Just remember that when you get a Valentine's Day card. Don't get that little demon on, on your car. Because that's what he represents. He represents lust. Shooting forth lust. And if you actually study Roman mythology, that's what he does. He just messes people up and destroys relationships. Because he makes it so that they're not thinking about the other person. They're only thinking about themselves. I must have you. That type of mentality. And sadly, the world loves Eros. The world loves this type of love. 
If you look at any advertisement, it's almost always about eros. Not always about sexual love, but about gratifying your own needs. It's always about you. Buy this product and you will be happy. Buy this product and your needs will be met. And when it seems like it's, oh, it's good, it's serving someone else, buy this diamond so that she will like you, so that you will feel good. Get this surgery so that he will like you, so that you will feel good. You see, it's, it's all about selfishness. It's all about eros. It's all about me, I, me, mine. Just wanting to satisfy one's flesh. And this is why a lot of people choose cohabitation over marriage. It's eros love. There's no real love there. It's just let's be together but if you stop meeting my needs, I'll just leave. There's no commitment. There's no, I'm going to be with you through sickness and through health. I'm going to be with you through the high and the low. It's just, I'll be with you as long as you're satisfying me. And if you stop satisfying me, we start to argue, goodbye. That's what cohabitation really is. It's eros love. Okay. What's that? Oh, there you go. Very good. Oh, we got two of them. Okay, so even Webster's Dictionary, I read it for you guys. I'm going to read it for you guys one more time. Just think about how carnal this love is, and yet it calls it life-preserving. Life-preserving instincts that are manifested as impulses to gratify basic needs such as sex. When it comes down to it, guys, Eros love is really, it's pornography. It's masturbation. It's those things. It's self-love. It's just wanting to gratify yourself. And I can guarantee you, if you're in any relationship with that type of mindset, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Hollywood loves it. Hollywood loves to make movies about it. Strangers meet. They make love. And then happily ever after. But it's a lie. I mean, it's such a lie. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I have plenty of people who could share that it is. But uh, I'm not going to bring them up. So do you know how many times eros, the word, word for love, eros, is mentioned in the Bible? Do you guys know? Zero. It's not mentioned once. In all the Greek, eros is not mentioned. Now, it's, it's mentioned in tons of other Greek books, tons of other literature, all about love. Eros, 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 but not in the Bible. Not once. Not mentioned once. And the reason for that is because it's not love. It's lust. It's coveting. It's wanting for your own desires. And God would never allow us to confuse this lustful love for what true love is. So this brings us to the next level in the hierarchy of love. And eros is actually below the floor, okay? It's not even on the, on the level, okay? But the next, next level up in love is philia. Philia. And you guys should know this word because our church is named after it. New Philadelphia. Philadelphia means city, which I believe is Delphia, of brotherly love. Philia. Brotherly love. Friendship love. That's what philia is. So the word for friend in the Greek is philos. So when Jesus says, I have called you friend, he says, you are my philos. I love you with a philia love, a brotherly love. Now, philia relates more to the soul than to the flesh, to the body. Okay, and this is much more of a connection, a mutual connection between people. And this can be, okay, we have the same sports team that we like, so we're friends. Okay, it's, it's not like I have an eros love for this person. Okay, it's not like I'm trying to, you know, have this person gratify my needs. No. It's just we enjoy being together because we have this like interest. That's really what philia is, is based upon. And it's good. It's good friendship. Friendships are often based on like interests, upon, wow, I really like the uniqueness of this person. I like being with this person. It's how friendships are usually started. It's how they're, how they're usually made. And God has no problem using this word to describe his love for us. And I want you guys to open your Bibles where you're at to John 16. 
We're going to read a verse where God speaks this love over us. John 16. John 16, verse 27 reads this. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The root translation of love in that verse is, For the Father himself philia you, has brotherly love, friendly love for you, because you have philia me, you have shown me brotherly love, friendship love, and have believed that I came from God. See, God has no problem, I believe, saying that love over us because we are all unique. I think you guys know this, but no one has the same fingerprint as you. Every person is made differently. And so there's a uniqueness to your character, to to your behavior, to your interests, to to your strengths, your weaknesses, that is different from every other person. There's a uniqueness about you. So God isn't just a a God of methodical love where I I love you all the same. He loves us for different reasons. Now, he has that same overlying love, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute. But that philia love really shows that he also, he views us as a friend. That he loves being with us. And there's some things that other people can't understand about us, but he understands. And he delights in. He loves us with a philia love. But this love actually is also used a lot in a negative sense. It's used more in an earthly sense. Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, he said, the one whom I kiss is the man. And that word kiss, when he was speaking to the Pharisees, was actually not kiss at all. It says, the one whom I philia is that man. What Judas really said wasn't a kiss. He says, the one whom I show brotherly love to is the man. And really to show brotherly love was to greet someone with a kiss. That's why it was interpreted that way. Peter, when he was reinstated after denying Jesus three times, Jesus came to him and said three times, Simon, do you love me? And each time, Peter responded, Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I philia you. He was basically saying, Yes, Lord, I love you as a friend. I love you as a friend. You see, Peter's love hadn't been perfected yet. The word philia is only mentioned 21 times in the whole New Testament. The word love is mentioned quite a bit. But philia is only mentioned 21 times, and mostly it's used by Pharisees and by the disciples. God only uses it a few times, and John 16, 27 was the key verse about it. You see, philia is a love that usually, it's not eternal. It's based on mutual connection, a like interest. And you guys have experienced this love all throughout your life. You guys can think back to the friends that you had in elementary school, the friends you had in junior high, the friends you had in high school, the friends you had in college. And you can look back and see how a lot of those friendships faded away. That maybe you were friends with them because, you know, you both played tennis or you both liked swimming or you both liked, you know, some actor or whatever. And you liked to hang out together. But then as time passed and that interest started to fade away and you started to become interested in other things, so did that friendship start to fade away. Because it, it, wasn't, it didn't have the true foundation of God's love. It was just a friendly love, a brotherly love. And so you can look back in your life and see a lot of your friendships were probably based upon that. And so if you met up with those friends today, the connection would be a little awkward, especially if you're no longer interested in those things you were once interested in. You wouldn't have much connection. Because your former connection was just in that like interest. That is philia. That's not the love that we're called to love with, to love by. The love that we're called to receive and to give is the third definition, the third word, agape. A-G-A-P-E, agape. 
Agape love is the highest word for love, known in the Greek, known to man. And I want you guys to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to read the definition to agape. 1 Corinthians 13. It's three books after John. Now, I'm going to substitute the word love. You guys know this passage very well. It's going to be 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. I'm going to substitute the true translation. The true translation does not read love. It reads agape. This is how it reads. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Agape is patient and kind. Agape does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never ends. And just a simple definition for agape is unconditional love. Unconditional love. It's a love that expects nothing in return. Agape love is unselfish. It's uncalculating. It gives 100% and never expects anything back. It's a love that goes completely against human nature. It's the complete opposite of eros. Where once you were trying to gratify your own needs, your own impulses, now you're trying to gratify others, to love others, to bless others. It is the definition of love. So 1 John 4.16, you can just write that reference. 1 John 4.16, when it says God is love, it actually means God is agape. You see, the definition of God is unconditional love. That is His true character. Now, we know that God is the God of justice, of power, of righteousness, of might, of provision, of healing, of all these different things. But what it comes down to, what all those things are based upon, justice and righteousness and holiness and and, and power and might, it's all based upon unconditional love. That is who God is. That is love's definition. Love's definition is God. And what that means is that when we show agape love, when we give love to others, we're actually showing God to them. I want you to think about that. You see, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because God first loved us. What that interprets as is we agape because God first agape us. We love unconditionally because God first unconditionally loved us. Romans 5.5 reads this, God's agape has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, you can't merit this love. You can't earn it. It's a love that is freely given to us. And it's why during those altar calls, you see people getting touched. It's not like they did anything to deserve it. Oh, I came to church today. I deserve to be touched by God. No, it's just God choosing and God releasing that love. And he pours it out freely upon us. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his agape, his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what agape is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He freely gives it to us. And so when we're able to love someone else with that agape love, we're able to love them freely, we're showing God to them. So how do you know if you're moving in agape love? How do you know if, if, is is this love selfish or is this love free? Because I know sometimes, you know, you, you might do something for a friend, but... You know, part of it, you feel good, you know, after doing that. You feel a little bit better about yourself. Now, is that true love? Is that agape love? Well, I'll tell you very pure examples where you can know if you're moving in agape. is when you pray for the nations. When you pray for the nations, your hearts get stirred. That's agape love. When you pray for North Korea, 
All right, you feel a tear going down, down your cheek or you feel your heart getting stirred, you know you're moving in agape love because what's North Korea going to do for you? Okay, what are you going to get out of that, out of praying for North Korea? There's no selfishness in that. You're experiencing God's heart. You're experiencing his love. And so when you love on another person with that love, when you just, man, you know, I, I just feel like doing something for this person and you show them love, you go out of your way, you're showing God to them. When scripture says you are God's hands and feet, you are the body of Christ, you aren't the body of Christ by showing up to church. You aren't the body of Christ by doing some ritual, by reading your Bible, okay, by, by even by praying or by praising. You are the body of Christ when you love. The greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it comes down to. Because you're knowing God when you worship. That's what true worship is, is knowing God, seeing God for who he is. And then when you love others, you are showing God to this world. You are being his hands and his feet. You are being the light into this world. That's agape love. His love is free. His love is undemanding. His love is his arms are always open. It's just like the prodigal's father. The son, you know, he takes his dad's inheritance. He runs off. He does all this sin, all this junk. His father's arms were always open. And his father ran to him. That is agape love. His father was getting nothing in return. He just loved his son. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 again for you guys. And I'm going to substitute the true definition of agape with God. I want you guys to read along. It says this. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on its own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never ends. I'm going to read the NIV for you guys. You are more familiar with this. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. God keeps no record of wrongs. Remember that. God is patient. God is kind. God is faithful. He never fails. He never dies. He never ends. He is always there for you. So those are the three words for love. Eros, which is not love, which is lust. You can just cross it out. It's not love. Philia, which is a brotherly love, a friendship love. And agape, which is God. It's unconditional love. It's what sets us apart. Without agape love, this world is fallen. This world is a mess. Everyone running after their own needs. But because God is present, we have that love and we have that ability to serve and to love one another. So before I close, I'm going to actually do something for you guys. I want to do an activity. I'm going to ask Audrey to just come up up here and, and uh, go ahead and hit the lights for me, Melody. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes. We're going to go back to the beginning of the message about how love is a process. Love is a maturity. And in order for us to receive love, we have to know our identity in Christ and we have to know God's identity as well. So what I want you guys to do is to go ahead and just close your eyes across the sanctuary. And I'm going to share. I'm not done. I have more to share, but you don't need to take notes. You can put your notebook away. And I want you to keep your eyes closed. I'm going to ask you guys a question right now. I want you to imagine yourself 
you're up in heaven, but you're alone, okay? You're in the court by yourself, and you're standing before God. Okay, you're just before the Lord, and He's in front of you, and He's looking down upon you. And I want you to just be honest with yourself. How do you feel? How do you see yourself? What do you look like before Him? What's the look on His face as He looks upon you? What's the look on His face as He sees you throughout the course of your life, as He sees every little high and low? What's the look on His face? How does He view you? I think for some of you, you guys are being blessed. That's good. I think for a number of you, though, there, there's just that, that honesty and that while some parts of it are good, some parts of it are bad. That there's a feeling that I wish I could hide part of this from God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you guys a story. I want you guys to keep your eyes closed. Just listen to this story. It's a heavy story. It's a tough story to hear, but uh, it's a good story. It's going to help you understand your identity before God. See, back in 2005, it was before I came to Korea. My sister Katie uh, was pregnant. She became pregnant for the first time. She had been married for six years. They had been trying. And she, she finally um, conceived. And we were really excited. And she was going to have a boy. And his name was going to be Clayton. But at the six-month mark... Uh, she had a miscarriage and Clayton had already formed quite a bit and so uh, she had to wait a few days with him in the womb and then had to uh, have surgery to deliver him and it was a very hard time for the family it was, it was devastating to be honest and we went through a lot of grieving during that time and two weeks after Clayton passed away my dad had a dream at night I want you to keep your eyes closed and just imagine this dream in this dream my dad was lifted up. He felt himself just being lifted up very high. And before him was a sheet. And the sheet before him fell. And it was just bright white. I mean, it was just the brightest white he could describe was in front of him. And he knew exactly where he was. And as his eyes began to focus, he saw three children playing in front of him. And they were on the ground. They were just playing happily together. And as he looked closer, it was two boys and a girl in the middle. And as he looked to the boy on the left, he realized it was my grandfather, Vic, who passed away in the 80s. And as he looked at my grandfather, Vic, closely, he saw him as all ages. So he's looking at, at this young boy, but when he looks at him, he can see my grandfather, Vic, as, as, as a little boy, as a teenager, as a young adult, and as the grandfather that he was before he passed away. He saw him at all ages. But most of all, he saw him as a little boy. And when my dad looked at the girl in the middle, he realized it was his grandmother, my great-grandmother, whom I have never met, passed away a long time ago. And as he looked at her again, he saw her as a child, but he could see her in all ages. He could see her as a young adult, as, as the elderly grandmother that she was before she passed away, and, and as, a, as a little tiny child. But more than anything, my dad saw her as just this little, happy, happy, joyful child playing. My dad had never seen her like that. And then when he looked at the third boy, 
Uh, he couldn't recognize him at first, but he said that the boy resembled uh, me and my brother-in-law's brother. It was like a mix of us. And he realized it was Clayton. And he looked at Clayton, and again, you could see Clayton's full lifespan, who Clayton was, was meant to be. And as he recognized Clayton, Clayton jumped up and ran to my dad. And he had the biggest smile on his face. And he said, it is so wonderful here. And my dad woke up. And my dad held that dream in his heart throughout the day. And it was later in the day that he was talking to my grandmother. And she was just expressing her grief over Clayton's passing and different things. And then she said to my dad, she said, you know, I just know that Vic is up there in heaven and he's playing with little Clayton right now. And she didn't know just how true what she, she was saying. And I, I know that God released that dream to help bring healing uh, to Katie and to my dad and to my family as we were grieving over Clayton's loss. We, we knew that Clayton was safe. He was in heaven. He was in the arms of the Lord. And that he was, he was joyful. He was happy where he is. And that brought comfort to us. But that dream also ministered to me as I've grown as a Christian. Because I've realized how God sees us. I've come to understand how God truly sees us. You see, God is the author of time. God made the heavens and the earth. He made us. And scripture says he formed us in our mother's womb. And before one of our days was ordained to be, every day was written in his book. Everything was written in his book before one day came to be. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew you when you were a baby. He knew you when you were a teenager. He knows you now. He'll know you when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s. He knows the things you've done. He knows the things you'll do. God is not bound by time. His view of you does not change with time. But so often because of our own sin or because of the things that we do, we allow those things to label ourselves and we think God thinks of us less. But the truth is God has always known us. He knew what the life that we would live and he sent his son to die for us. His love is pure. And he will always look upon us as pure, as beautiful, as children as innocent children. And even if when you were young, you know, you, you got into trouble, he saw you before that. He knew who you were meant to be. He knows who you truly are. He knows your true identity. And that's how he chooses to see you. Always. God is love. God is agape. Unconditional love. He is Emmanuel. He is the Lord with you. And he delights in you. So I want to ask you again to see yourself in heaven, standing by yourself, and you're standing in front of God, great and mighty God. How do you see yourself? How does God see you? And what is the expression on Agape's face, upon love's face as he looks upon you? God, I just thank you, Lord, that we are safe. 
I thank you that we are secure, Lord, in your arms of love. God, I thank you that you chose us, Lord. That, God, the, the merit of our love is not based upon anything that we do or say or are. It's based upon your choice. And we can't escape your love. We can't hide from your love. Your love is always with us, God. Your love is pure. You knew us before time began. And you loved us, Lord. You saw yourself in us, Lord. You made us in your image, God. And you delight in us. And you say, my child, my child, receive my love. Receive my love. Your identity is safe in me. Don't find your identity in this world. Don't let sin shape your identity. But know that your identity is in me and that I love you and will always love you with an everlasting love. I draw you with loving kindness. I'm with you and I am mighty to save. I take great delight in you. I quiet you with my love. I rejoice over you with loud singing. My child, you are my treasure. You are my delight. And you will always be my delight for eternity. God, I thank you that we're worthy by your blood. I thank you that your blood purchased purchased us, God. I thank you, Lord, that your blood showed us the way. And God, I thank you that we can't, Lord, earn this love. We just All we have to do is just soak. All we have to do is just be before you, Lord. And you fill our hearts. You overflow. It's in you that we live and move and have our being, God. It's in you. So, Lord, I just, I just commit New Philadelphia Ite One, your sons and your daughters, God, and the visitors here to you. I declare that, Lord, we are a people of God. We are a people of love, a people of agape. And, God, we are marked by your love, Lord, and we will share your love. And I thank you, God, that it's never a love that is forced. It's a love that just flows from you. And, God, I just bless this church with a childlike heart that, Lord, God, we will not, Lord, work. We will not, Lord, try and achieve your favor, your blessing, God. But we will know that there is nothing that we can do to make you love us more. And there is nothing that we can do to make you love us less, God. Your love is eternal. It is unchanging. It never fails. It never dies. It never ends, God. Your love is always for us, Lord. And I just declare that unfailing love, that safe love, that pure love, that glorious love over your church, Lord. And I just declare in this year of intimacy, Lord, that we will learn how to receive and just soak in your presence, God. And love is going to be natural. Love is just going to flow. It's just going to flow out of our hearts, God. We're not going to have to push ourselves, force ourselves, Lord God, to love our neighbor. But Lord, just knowing your heart, just being before you, Lord, it's going to become easy. And I thank you, Lord, that this is your will. This is your desire. Let the little children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, God. And we are your children, Lord. And we come to you, and we receive your kingdom of love. We receive your heart, Lord. Bless your name, God. Thank you, Father. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.